in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. God's providence is working everywhere at all times. And in uh, meditating on this passage and this sermon this morning, I knew that it would be a smaller, more intimate crowd, and I kind of even figured who would show up. And it, it, it just so happens, according to God's providence, that this passage here is really going to give us great instruction, insight, and a model uh, for good mission and ministry. And everybody that's here is involved in some way or other in mission and ministry. And so this is, so to speak, uh, quite the seminar, if you would, for us that Paul's going to give. It's, it's sometimes uh, boastful, but you have to understand what Paul's up against. And it's not that Paul is boasting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, about himself. He's boasting about what the gospel ministry is. Paul will at oftentimes make clear who he is in and of himself. But here he is reminding them the true gospel comes to you in this way. This is an expansion on verses 5 through 6 in chapter 1, essentially. Because as soon as the gospel uh, was planted in this earth, as soon as the, the church, the New Testament church, was inaugurated by Jesus himself, there were, there were false teachers. There were, there were people who were coming against this message. Satan had uh, dispatched his minions to uh, bring counterfeit to the gospel, to draw people away, to blind their eyes and minds from the glory of the gospel. And so Paul's up against that. He has a fledgling church in the Thessalonians, and he loves them, and he's been moved on, and he is uh, still desirous of them, and he, he wants them to flourish and to know the Lord. And so he has to again, remind them some six times in this passage uh, to think about how the gospel came to you. And it will uh, further authenticate what the message was that they heard and that they believed. And it will allow them to distinguish between counterfeits, which is extremely important. So we have to be... Uh, utterly familiar with the gospel in order to distinguish counterfeits. And one way that Paul is going to do that is he's going to talk about uh, how they brought it. Okay? This is a missionary endeavor. It's, it's a missionary effort in this context. Uh, and yet there is a, a shepherding that happened after the mission movement caused, or by the grace of God, caused a, a church to spring up, then there's a shepherding that happens over that group. And so we're going to see elements of that as well. And hopefully the application or instruction for us is going to be, how do we rightly minister the word in whatever context? Maybe you're going to go on mission in some regard. And so you're going to have to see and think about how Paul did this and what were some practical things in which he used or he modeled to not bring attention to himself, but to bring attention to the gospel. And then for those of you that are or are going to be involved in shepherding a church that has sprung up, 
we need to also know what a heart looks like that has been called to that endeavor. So there is a lot here in these 12 verses. I've kept them all together because uh, it's, it's kind of one long thought from Paul, and I didn't want to break that up just yet. Uh, we can revisit some of these things in the future. But, but notice in your Bible, in this passage, that six times Paul is asking them to remember what they know about the gospel and about how it came to them. Then they should be like, oh, yeah, that was legit. And there's some reasons why uh, Paul makes very clear why they're bringing that message was legit. So this is an expansion, as I told you, of verse 5 and 6. And so here's the first call to remembrance. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, you see the conflict that arises in Philippi before they make their way to Thessalonica. And by the time they make their way to Thessalonica, those ornery, angry Jews from Philippi had followed them to cause more trouble for them in Thessalonica. And the reason that Paul uh, first mentions this to them is that, look, the, the kind of suffering and persecution that we endured on behalf of the message that we brought to you, if it was not a legit message, it would have been snuffed out by that type of persecution in Philippi. And instead, it abounded and came to you. It didn't stop. It wasn't silenced. We, we didn't regard the uh, suffering or the anger as anything, but they had boldness in God to declare that he gave them in the midst of much conflict. So one uh, characteristic of a legitimate message is that the gospel continues despite the persecution that arises around around it. Uh, And I think that you and I can examine our Bibles and pretty quickly find that that is the case. In essence, you have the greatest form of persecution uh, ever labeled against men in the crucifixion of Jesus and the gospel only exploded from there. So the church has often found that under such circumstances, God shows his power and his authority and his beauty and grace in saving sinners in the midst of such conflict. Otherwise, we would just shut up. But that's not the call of the gospel. And they do this, if you go back to verse 5 in chapter 1, because they have full conviction. or In in other words, they fully believe the truth of this message. One of the greatest apologetics for the gospel is that those disciples and apostles who fled during the arrest of Jesus... Uh, after his resurrection, then find themselves proclaiming it uh, to the very point of their death. Because they can't lie. There's nothing to deny. There's nothing to recant. They can't uh, tell you anything different. The message remains the same. 
and the hope of it causes them to proclaim it even if they die. So the legitimacy of the gospel, one characteristic is it remains steadfast under trial. Next, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. In other words, the motivation for bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians is not in any attempt to trick them. There's no trickery involved. There's no desire to pull the wool over their eyes. And the gospel message proves that. As it's fleshed out and explained, there is no benefit to be derived from simply uh, telling people that message and them not believing. It's for people to believe. And he's going to explain why there's no impurity or trickery in his appeal in just a minute. And, and first he, he sets the stage here. He says, look, we're not talking to please you. In other words, I don't, it's not about how you feel about this message at the outset. It's about the truth. And the gospel will offend at times. And hopefully you and I have seen that happen. People don't like to know that they're sinners and they're eternally accountable to uh, a righteous, holy God for things that they see as minor. They don't like to think of eternal damnation as being thrust upon them. That's for rapists and serial killers and child abusers and all that sort of thing. And we don't put ourselves in that category. And so when you say that you are, condemned, child of wrath, do sin, that becomes offensive. And so one motivation in your appeal and bringing the gospel has to be that, look, I, I, I know that this might offend them or they might not like this, but here is the truth. And through that offensiveness of the uh, first things of the gospel, you have fruit and good news. Otherwise, you can't use the word gospel. And we heard uh, some Saturdays back that actually repentance is a good thing, right? It's, it's the ability, it's the moment in time in which there is uh, an opportunity to change your mind or to, or to turn the other way, so to speak. And so even that, has good news in it. And he appeals to the highest court, so to speak, right? He says, look, we speak to please God. He entrusted us with the gospel. He tests our hearts. In other words, it's, it's kind of like if you're a, a minister or a missionary or whatever, uh, where's your accountability? Well, you could have accountability with each other, and you could have check marks and checks and balances and all this sort of stuff. But ultimately, God knows exactly what's going on in your heart and in your mind. He knows exactly why you're doing what you're doing. And there is no greater court of appeals than that. 
Who is the, the judge of the world, the living and the dead? It's God. And I think sometimes when, when some of these in sheep's clothing try and bring a false gospel, it's, they don't believe that. They don't believe that God is testing their hearts. It doesn't cause them to shudder like do, right? They, they, they don't believe actually what they say. Because God is investigating times what you're doing and why you're doing. And really, he is the only one who ever knows. And you may think you're safe in that, but you're not. In fact, one day you'll be exposed for that. And may the blood of Jesus cover you from those transgressions. Because we'll all have them. We'll all do things out of the wrong motive. We'll all um, not be a perfectly impure steward of the gospel as God reveals our hearts. But we should be like David, who understood, at least in one part in Psalm 51, that you have to search my heart and know me and make these things known to me that I may be clean. And certainly Paul is one of those people who is constantly asking the Lord to lay bare his heart. We know in 2 Corinthians he's got this thorn in the flesh, which is for that very thing. God knows in his heart he would be bound to be conceited by the flesh that still wages war in his personhood. And unless he had this thorn, he would grow conceited and prideful because what the Lord has shown and speaks to him in a supernatural way. And so he makes Paul aware. We need to be aware of our shortcomings as we bring the gospel. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, and again, God is witness. Jesus often appealed to the Father as the greatest witness of his heart and his life and his ministry. And so should we. But also our actions will show what we're doing. They'll, they'll bear the fruit of what's in our heart. And one thing that I like about Paul is Paul uh, was more schooled than probably 99% of people in the ancient world. And Paul could have manipulated language and emotion and his position and caused a great crowd to not only follow him, but like him. Such is the ability, the sinful ability sometimes, of, of people like him. But instead, what is Paul about? He's about the truth. He submitted to that. They're, he is not buttering them up so that it's easier for them to hear the gospel. He's not telling them that they're beautiful and lovely and awesome and amazing and, oh, by the way, you're wretched sinners. No, he, he begins with that. And he says, look, me too. And here's what we need. And 
And as you receive this, you will become that glorified child of the king. But there is no words of flattery that preempt his speeches or his talk. He doesn't try and tell the crowd how wonderful and how good looking they are. But he just tells them what the gospel is. And it's, it's interesting that he, in, in verse 5, he, on the back side of that, he says, nor with a pretext for greed. Words of flattery, he didn't come with those, nor with a pretext for greed. And it reminds me of a lot of what we see, especially on uh, TV or social media in regards to the, the pop culture idea of Christianity. It's this narcissistic theology, this me-centered church. It's, it's used by men who are wolves in sheep's clothing preying on the sheep, sneaking in to the sheep pen, making them feel good about themselves. And then they say, you're going to need to send me some more money. You're going to need to pad the pockets a little bit for this to keep going. If you want to keep feeling good, I need to keep getting paid. And, and that's what their ministry proves to be. Nobody's helped. Nobody's edified. Nobody's sanctified. People are left off worse than when they began, except for the guy that is using flattery as a pretext for greed. And Paul's going to tell them how he's not greedy. And they're going to have to say, yeah, you were not greedy. This was not you. You were simply bringing the truth to us. God is witness. He'll make that known. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul understands his unique position in office, more unique than any of us know. He's an apostle. He's an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. He's spoken to him. He's encountered him in a real, physical, face-to-face sense. And he's been called to be a messenger on account of that. I would argue that there are no apostles today. There are messengers. I'm a messenger. You're a messenger. Ambassadors. For the gospel, but there are no apostles today. And in fact, if you read Revelation, we're only going to see uh, on the gates of heaven recognize the twelve apostles. Certainly, Paul and one or two others were allowed that title as well because of their encounters with Christ and their call to be messengers of that resurrection. But certainly, they had a special, unique office. And so he's saying, Look, we, we could have called for uh, all the help and support that we need. We could have called for a special hearing. We could have demanded that you listen, so to speak. But that's not what's going to serve the gospel. So even in his special, unique office, he seeks to put that aside. If Paul were to come here today, it would be the most um, glorious speaker in the world because he's an apostle of Christ. 
but Paul puts that away. And he does so because he knows Jesus. And if you read Philippians 2, you know that Jesus, in one sense, veiled his glories as God in the flesh to take on the form of a servant, to serve his church, or the church that he was starting, to serve his people, to be a shepherd as to his sheep, to put on those garments, to clean and protect and provide for and rescue his people. Not, not to be served. There will be time to, to see him in all his splendor and to praise his glory on the throne and, and, and to be about uh, giving him that glory. But he came for a specific purpose. And so we follow Paul in this way that whatever credentials you and I have, they get put aside for the gospel. Remember one time there was a banquet and I was uh, the guest of this pastor and, and this speaker and there was a meal and, uh, you know, I got my food and I was going to sit down with the people and, and the pastor came over to me and he said, oh, no, 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 we sit at, at the head table. And I said, I don't think I do. I think I go sit over here. That, that, that is the attitude that we must get rid of even if it's legitimately ours to have. Don't we want to be humble instead of God having to humble us? I think Lauren posted something on Faith Life this week about the humility that characterized the people who bring the message. If Jesus brought the message in the humble way when he had all clout and all the universe to proclaim and display all of his majesty and cause people to bow down and to worship and to serve him, if he brought it in such humility that he would come as a baby into a manger and that he'd walk dirty streets and that he would uh, use his spit to cause people's eyes to be open and he would dine and eat with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, then how should you and I bring the gospel? I gravitate towards those people. And there's one in particular that a few of us know at the seminary uh, probably has forgotten more scripture, more books, more theology than you and I will ever read in our entire lifetime and the most humble person I think I've ever known. No pretext for getting his name out there. Does not assume that you title him right when you ask him to come speak or share. Is more than willing to sit by the deathbed of somebody he doesn't know. It's a Christ-like example of how you bring the gospel to people. No demands, just free gifts. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you. That word gentle is, is often used of infants. And then he switches gears here. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, you were ready to share, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. If you don't love people, not in the sense like you have to like everything about them, but if you don't love people enough to want them to have 
a relationship with Jesus or want them to have the gospel or want them to grow in Christ, then you are not called to be a shepherd. You are not called to minister the gospel. And here's the kicker. Every believer is called to do that. So we're called to have this love of Christ one for another. And if you love God, that will play out as love for neighbor. In other words, as John says, you can't, you can't hate your brother and love God. In other words, you will overflow in love for people. The, the, the language Paul uses here is so unlike somebody uh, from his background and position. He is, again, stooping down, desiring to bring them in close to his heart and to give them everything he has to give. And, and to be quite literal, when you see a nursing mother, is she completely detached from what she's doing? Is she hating that child? No. She's caressing that child, comforting that child, helping that child. She is not disdaining that child. And, and then he uses another phrase, affectionately desirous. Wow. He, he just doubled up on his love for them. Of you. He loves them so much, he's giving them all that he has to give them, which is himself. Paul's life is an example of laying down his life for his brother. You can look in 2 Corinthians 12, Philippians 2, 1 John 3, 16, and find Paul being poured out and pouring himself out for the benefit of others. He even says in Romans uh, 10, I believe, that I wish I were accursed and cut off if it means my brothers, my kinsmen, my fellow Jews would come into the kingdom. Who speaks like that? Who's willing to sacrifice himself in such a way? Well, everybody would be if we understood the love of Christ. If we understood how the gospel is to go forth from our life. Remember that movement, I am second, that had a campaign, that had a bunch of like celebrities, supposed Christian celebrities, I am second, I am second campaign or whatever. No, I always hated that. We're not second. I, I don't know where we are. We're somewhere way down the list, but we're not second. God's first, neighbor's second, and then other neighbors and other neighbors and other neighbors and all that. We're, we're no. Paul understands who takes care of him, who provides for him. And his compassion and affection then is directed outwards or horizontally uh, to others. He is convicted and confident in where he uh, derives all of his needs from. And if we're sure of that, then we're not worried about getting ours. We're worried about them getting theirs. 
And remember again, the whole time, he is making them remember how they saw these things. How they saw these things. Go back and read those verses that I mentioned, and you'll see how Paul is modeling this for us. But he's modeling this out of love. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13, if you have, don't have love, you have nothing. You have all these gifts and all these abilities and all this knowledge, but you don't have love, forget about it. It's often attributed to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Man, that, that is true. Unless you're called in specifically as a PhD or a doctor or something just to speak to something because of your expertise, but if you're actually going to affect somebody with the gospel, they want to know how much you care. You can't detach love and affection from your bringing of the gospel. People will smell that a mile away. And that's why Paul mentioned earlier, I didn't deceive you. I showed you. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. That we might not be a burden to any of you. Why we proclaim to you the gospel of God. What's he talking about here? He is not presumptuous on gospel fruit until there is gospel fruit. In other words, Paul could have demanded as an apostle, he had to pay me. I'm one of Christ's apostles uh, before they even understood what an apostle was. This is, a, this is this missionary context. This is this fledgling church. And Paul is making sure that they have their foundation set before they ever think about um, uh, supporting him and, and other missions. If you go read 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 9 in particular, I believe, they will be those who support Paul later on in his efforts with the Corinthians. And he'll appeal to that. He'll say, look, they were poor, and they gave according to their means and some beyond in order for the work to continue and come here. Right now, when he's with them, that's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the gospel, and hopefully you've had the opportunity, as have I, to be in that context when it, it, it's just about the gospel. Like, you have to get this. This isn't about me. This isn't about what I need. It's about what you need now so that this thing can grow, flourish, and give glory to God. Gospel first, then we'll work on organizing the house. But you've got to have a foundation. And that's what he's doing for them. And so they're called to think, now, let me think about this. We didn't support them at all. They didn't ask from us anything. They just kept sharing this message of Jesus. And sowing tents at night. Or during the day. That, they really weren't looking for anything from us. They were just giving to us. And that's pretty powerful. And then he says again, verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Man, imagine being able to say that to people you've ministered to. It's beautiful. 
And, and listen, you've got to interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. Paul's never assuming that these things come from him. Read Galatians. They come from Christ in me. I work harder than any of them, Paul says, but it's not I, but Christ in me. So th these things come from a heart, a new heart from God as a new creation of his. His spirit, the down payment, the power to work out our word at work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And a heart oriented toward loving God, which then is oriented toward loving neighbor, and therefore we can minister with pure and right motives. It's not impossible. It's actual. It's real. And real ministry happens when people are so affected by the gospel that they desire other people to be affected by it. And so they act out in that way. It's like you've heard the old adage, hurt people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. What about gospel people? Gospel people. I mean, they give good news to people. They've been brought good news to, so they bring good news to others. Free of charge. For you know, again, for the last time, how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's used family terms. Nursing mother, father, his children. This is not a club of friends. This is a family of believers. This is an eternal family of believers. And we treat each other as such. And we have spiritual fathers and mothers, and we need them. And we want to enjoy the growth of our children, and so we need to see that as a direct result of how we exhort and encourage and charge them. Everybody should have, at some point in their Christian life, a spiritual son or daughter and a spiritual father or mother, or both. How do you pass on the traditions of the gospel in the church if you don't have that? Paul calls for that in Titus. He, he tells Timothy to remember from which he learned the gospel from his grandmother and his mother. These familial relationships are supposed to exist not only in the nuclear family in the home, but in specifically the church. And what did they do? What's a father to do? To exhort, is to teach, to instruct, to raise up in the ways of the Lord, to encourage. Paul tells fathers not to discourage their children or bring them to anger, but to encourage them. Sometimes this is not something that us fathers are particularly good at. It's something we have to grow in. We have to encourage them in their faith. Call out the things we see them doing that are great. And charge. Charge them. Instruct them. Paul does this often, especially with Timothy, 
charges him to preach the word in season and out of season. Calls them to do something in light of everything they've been taught and everything they've been growing in. And he says, he charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Well, for you and I, that's a big task and that's rather impossible. Worthy of God. I thought the gospel's whole message was that we're not worthy of God. That's right. So how do you walk in a manner worthy of God when you're not worthy of God? Well, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He is pleased in his children who have been born unto his spirit and now are given the tools to walk in a manner worthy. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul prays that they would, that God would cause them to walk in a manner worthy. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by what? His power. His power working in you causes you to work in a manner worthy, causes you to minister the gospel in a way that can be described as holy, righteous, and blameless. These things are not out of reach. These things are the way in which we're supposed to minister the gospel. And we do that by the power of God. We labor and we love, but we do all because of Christ in us. And by the way, here's Paul's signature, right? He always leaves a little gospel nugget. He just drops it in there and it hopefully uh, explodes over the whole thing. He says this, charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul essentially reconnected what we see in Romans 8, 29 through 30, the golden chain. He said, oh yeah, by the way, God, who we're just talking about that you're going to walk in a manner worthy of, he already justified you. He justified you so that he can bring you in and glorify you. Right now, you're having your sanctification and the exhortation, the encouragement, and the being charged. But you're already justified, which is just as good as being glorified. So, your eternal hope is secure your eternal destination and relationship and reconciliation with God is sure. So therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom to which you've been called into. Live as a citizen there before you live as a citizen anywhere else. And the things that, that testify to the fact or characterize you as a citizen of the kingdom are the fact that you bring the gospel to others is more important than yourselves out of humility and love because God has worked and shown both those things to you and getting the gospel to you. So go and do likewise. And that's the message in these verses. You're justified. You're glorified. What about them? And do you care? Paul says, I care. That's how the gospel got to you. It's not because of me. It's because of what God did in me for you. 
So I would uh, encourage you to meditate on not only how the gospel got to you, but why. Why? Certainly for your salvation and for you to know God, but what about them? And then we'll stand and sing together.